I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. We're going to 1 Peter. And this is an important message that Peter has to deliver to the Church of Jesus Christ, to brothers and sisters scattered throughout all of Asia when he writes his letter. Some people think that this was originally a sermon that Peter put together, maybe even at the time of baptism. Well, we've had baptism here today, so this is a most appropriate place to be in the text. Last week, I talked about your verbal witness, and we did so from Acts chapter 8. Well, today, I want to talk about your action witness. Last week, it was love in word. Today, it is love in deed the action witness. And I am going to focus on that passage that is familiar to you wives. And so I want to alert you spouses that if you have a spouse who is not a believer, this passage is actually especially written for you in 1 Timothy 3. And if you have not discovered it before, I want you to think about it. If you have brothers or sisters, parents or children who are not believers in the Lord Jesus, this is the key passage for you to receive into your heart and understand and pray about and seek obedience in. Because here Peter addresses the very thing that is on your heart and maybe the thing that most often you pray for. And the thing that troubles you maybe most deeply is that you have those in your family who are not believers in the Lord Jesus, and you want them to be with you in heaven, and you want them to know Christ and have the life that He offers. Well, here is the passage for you, 1 Timothy 3. It will tell you the strategy that the Apostle Peter offers for winning those in your family who are not believers. And all of us understand the difficulty of communicating to family our faith in Christ. And we don't want to be seen as preaching to them. And sometimes it sounds maybe like a harangue to them. And it's a difficulty. Well, that's addressed in this passage. Mitch Landrew rehearsed for us our mayor on Tuesday at a breakfast that I attended. A funeral we had on Monday where a grieving mother in our city said, I hope after I bury Jeremy that people will learn to let petty things go. Jeremy was two when he was hit by a stray bullet in a gunfight in the streets of Central City. And he died at University Hospital. And Mitch Landrieu said to the group present, this is an issue that concerns us all, and we must do something. And then the mayor called to mind the story of the Good Samaritan. Of course I love this story. This exposition of the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, to explain what this means, this great commandment, told the story of the Good Samaritan. And the mayor called to mind the story. And he said, the mayor walked by 
the man in the ditch. And the city council person walked by. And then he said, and the preacher walked by. Yes, he did. (laughs) And he was right. And he preached a mighty good message. And then he said, let's not walk by the hurt in our city. As one individual sitting in that room, I said to myself, God, what is it you want me to do? In response to the death of Jeremy and the bloodshed in the streets of New Orleans, what is it that I can do? I want you to ask that question of yourself. Lord, what is it that I can do? to address the pain and trouble and violence and need that is around me. I want you to ask the question. I was a reporter here in 1979 when we had 300 murders for the first time. In 1994, there were 400 murders. And even with our much smaller population, we have over 200 murders So I want us to think about it. Lord, what do you want me to do? And I know that many of you are busy in many ways. But when we come to the action witness, I think we are talking about doing something, about acting, getting ourselves in motion, taking the initiative and making a difference. And let me introduce this to you from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in the middle of verse 20. And do we have that on the PowerPoint? Do we start in verse 20? Yes, very good. If you have your Bible, or if you want to, you can pull that one out in the pew in front of you, because I want you to see what Peter does in this letter. In verse 20, in the middle, he says, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, This is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. And I have underlined in my Bible, follow in His steps. You remember that famous book by Charles Sheldon, In His Steps? which has come under some fire because people say that's not an appropriate ethical question. What would Jesus do? And when I read that, a preacher saying that, I thought to myself, does he know the New Testament? Has he read the Bible? We should follow in his steps. That's what Peter says here. Do you think Peter writes that thinking back to the Sea of Galilee when Jesus said to him, follow me? And Peter got up from his place and put one foot in front of the other and followed Jesus. And when he writes this years later, surely that is in his mind. He has never stopped following Jesus. It's the same with John, who was there, a companion of Peter by the Sea of Galilee. When he starts to talk about the responsibility of brothers and sisters in Christ to live for Christ, he says, if you say you love him, You ought to walk as he walked. That's 1 John 2, 6. Peter and John know what it means to walk as he walked. 
to follow in his steps. It echoed in their heart for the rest of their lives to the day they died when Jesus said, follow me. Now, I'm asking you to follow Jesus, brothers and sisters. To follow in his steps this morning. Now, note what he says next. Follow in his steps. He committed no sin. You see in the NIV that's set aside because it's a quote. Guess from where? Isaiah 53. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And there I want to stop and want to talk about follow in his steps for just a little bit more, okay? Last week, when I talked about your verbal witness, the word witness that you are to bear, I did so from Acts chapter 8. There was an Ethiopian man riding in a chariot. Which chapter was he reading? Isaiah 53, right? Now, Peter started with that passage in Isaiah 53 and preached who? Preached Jesus unto him. He started right there and told him about Jesus. Just like what Peter rehearses here. Peter talks about all of us went astray. What is that? That's Isaiah chapter 6. After the direct quote from Isaiah 53, he then references Isaiah 53 and that whole chapter again and again. He's talking about the very same chapter that Philip used to lead the Ethiopian to faith in Christ. And here's my point, okay? Here's my point. The cross is the emblem of our salvation, just like Philip demonstrated when he gave the gospel to the Ethiopian man, who then trusted Jesus and was baptized. It is the death of Christ upon the cross which was in our place for our stead. All we like sheep are going astray, just like Peter said here. And God laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. That's why the cross is the centerpiece of Christian thought. That's why we go back to the cross always because it is upon the cross where God bought our salvation through the death of His Son. It's why your works of righteousness cannot save you or the cross would be of no effect. If you could be saved by the manufacturing of your own actions and activities, then Jesus would not have had to die upon the cross. But after thousands of years of human history, it was evident that every man would go astray. Every woman would turn to her own way. Every one of us are sinners in need of a Savior. And God chose to save us through the death of His Son. Rehearsed in Isaiah 53, 
and lived out at Calvary. Now, when Peter wants to talk about not simply your salvation, but your Christian living, where do you think he goes? He goes to the cross. He goes to the very same place where Philip was when he led the Ethiopian man to Christ. He goes to the cross and says, I want you to follow in his steps. Well, he took many steps in his life. Shall I follow in the steps where he healed the man? Or where he fed the 5,000? Or where he walked on the water? Maybe those are the steps I need to follow. But Peter, though Jesus lived an exemplary life in every way throughout all of his years upon the planet, when Peter begins to talk about you living in your world, following Jesus in your time and your place, he goes right to the cross where Jesus died. And he said, of all the things that exemplify life in Christ, this cross is the greatest. This is the declaration of who I want you to be in your world. When the writer of Hebrews writes to people who are having hard times and they are struggling to stay true like many of us do, and they had temptations and trials and difficulties, and some of them had quit coming to church and they'd fallen away from the Word. The writer of Hebrews rehearses the great roll call of faith. He talks about all those who trusted in God. And then he says, Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses to faith in Christ. Let us lay aside every weight. You know of what he speaks, the things that drag you down and hold you back. Lay aside every weight. And the sin which so easily besets us, you know that too. The devil knows your particular weakness. Lay aside the weight. Lay aside the sin. And what? Run with patience the race that is set before you, sister. With patience and endurance and perseverance, the race that is set before you. How am I to do that? Looking unto Jesus. Some of you hadn't been doing that. You've been looking somewhere else. You've been worried about somebody else's walk. You've been disillusioned by people that you really didn't need to focus on. You got disappointed by somebody in the church. Well, welcome to the crowd. We all got disappointed by somebody in the church. If you want to live through the hard times for Jesus, if you want to please the Lord and hear the Father's well done, look unto Jesus. Who's he? He's the author and the finisher of your faith. He not only started you out, he's going to finish what he started. I want to look unto Jesus, writer of Hebrews. I want strength in my time of need. But I see Jesus in so many places. Where do you want me to look? Who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross. The writer of Hebrews takes you right to the place where Peter takes you here. He wants you to see the cross. 
He wants you to watch Jesus as he dies and gives his life for you. And he says to you, this is where the inspiration for your living in the world is. This is where you will find the strength, the endurance to keep true until death. Right here at the cross where Jesus laid it all down for you. And the scripture says in this passage we've just read, Jesus gave us an example that we are to follow. And the word in the Greek is hypogrammos. And what it means is, it is those letters that a teacher gave to a beginner student that helped them learn the alphabet. And so they got the letter A, and they learned to trace it. And sometimes you would take that tool and you would actually trace it out just like the children do Jesus is our example we trace the lines right along his life we learn to write the Christian life by seeing him and how he writes we follow in his steps. He is the example. Brothers and sisters, I understand you need courage, you need drive, you need perseverance, you need strength. All these great things need to be in you. But when Jesus dies, not only does he demonstrate all these things, he demonstrates a surpassing humility that is a chief quality of God's perfect Son and must be in you. And when Peter talks about Christian living, he often comes back to this. He talks about submission in several different ways in the letter, but he comes back to this idea of humility again and again. Even when the pagan comes to you with questions, you're to answer with meekness and gentleness. There's to be a humility that characterizes your life. It is true to the Lord Jesus not to be grasping at everything you can get, but to be humble. There is some powerful strength in that kind of life. Pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your, what? Inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 
Two things. Okay? Win them by behavior. That's it. Follow in his steps. Win them with behavior. Now, this is one instance in the New Testament and in the Scriptures where for sure the apostle is talking about and the Scripture is talking about winning somebody over to faith in Christ. It may not be the exclusive instance. I think it might be, though, where we have a winning over to Christ. How? Through behavior. There are two ways in which your behavior wins people to Christ. The first is your inner self, which he mentions here. Do you see that? Adorn the inner self. Watch your inner self. Be careful about what's going on in here. Personal holiness. Peter talks about this over and over again. One of the things he talks about is abstaining from sinful desires that war against your souls. That's verse 2 of cha- uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. Abstaining from worldly desires that war against your soul. Now, brothers and sisters, there's never been a day when worldly desires have been more easily fulfilled and those distractions have been more prominent than today. We live in the age of the internet. And you can go places on the internet where we couldn't go physically 50 years ago. Our personal holiness is part of winning our brothers and sisters and family members to faith in Christ. And men and women, we can't do without personal holiness. It doesn't matter how eloquent our testimony is. If we are not personally living for Christ and the inner self is not reflecting the character of Jesus, everything we say is undercut by that behavior. If we are angry, if we are bitter, if we are jealous, if we are gossips, all those things poison the word which we are to proclaim. Our lives must affirm our words. They must give it substance. In fact, Peter says, this lost husband of yours is going to have to be one without words, and the way you're going to do that is by your behavior. And he introduces the idea of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's not simply a trait of wives. Gentleness and quietness is part of what is commended to all believers in the church, there is to be a quality about you that is not anxious. Let you in on a little secret. Sometimes I get anxious. People say, oh, no, you weren't anxious about that sermon. I say, yes, I was. I was worried. Sometimes I come to church and I'm anxious and my heart is burdened and I'm worried about something. And your, your staff will testify when we have prayer before church. I pray, Lord, help us not be anxious. Help us have a gentle and quiet and calm and confident presence among the brothers and sisters of this body. 
That is an important thing for you to do with your family. To have a gentle, calm, and confident presence. Not always so wrought up, so anxious, so afraid of the future and all of the possibilities. It is unsettling to everybody in your circle of influence for you to be that way. And it is contradictory to your faith in Christ. Peter ends these specific verses to wives by saying, do what is right and don't be afraid. Do you think that is the only time in the Bible where the Scripture says, Brother, don't be afraid. You're responding in fear. You're running from things. You're bouncing here and there because you are afraid and you are anxious. Don't be afraid. It is a resounding course throughout the Scripture. Every time God meets up with somebody in the Bible, the first thing He says is, Don't be afraid. Mary, don't be afraid. Gideon, don't be afraid. We want to be afraid. Peter talks about that. Living for Christ without fear. Wives, would you make a goal this week to live in your home and with your children and your husband in the confident, faith-filled presence of a gentle and quiet spirit? Guys, when you go to work, would you exemplify patience and strength at the same time? Would you demonstrate a calmness of heart? There is something about the non-anxious presence that communicates the presence of God to those you love. You say, well, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know the pain and trouble I've suffered. And that is true. I don't know what you're going through. But I know this. When Jesus went through the cross, he did not revile his persecutors. He went like a lamb to the slaughter, and he did not open his mouth. He did not return their curses with cursing. How did he do that? He committed himself to the Father. That's how he did it. He committed himself to the one who judges uprightly. And that's the first movement of your heart. Husband, wife, the first movement of your heart in this living out your faith is to commit your life to the one who judges uprightly. I'm going through an unjust persecution. Commit yourself to the one who judges uprightly. I'm having problems that were not of my making or of my choosing. Commit yourself to the one who judges uprightly. First and foremost, commit yourself unto the God who loves you. Your personal holiness... Your manner, your disposition, your presence in the world is vital to your testimony. And it communicates powerfully, particularly when you are in pain. But it is not alone. It is joined with good deeds. So it is not just personal holiness which I am commending to you. 
but it is that thing which the Samaritan demonstrated when he reached out to the man in the ditch. It is taking the initiative, leaving your turf, going to the place where you are uncomfortable to help somebody in need. That, too, is a demonstration of God's presence in your life. And so God intends for you to bear this distinctive witness in his world and to, and to live a life that is distinguished from all the other lives around you in this, that you turn the other cheek, that you pour your life out unto death, that you go the second mile, that you love not only your neighbor, but also your enemy, that you do good to those who persecute you. And in so doing, with this surprising, unusual, distinctive behavior that Jesus demonstrated for us on the cross and which is to be at work in your life, you startle the world. And you listen for the question because it's coming. It's coming. Peter says after this passage, look, live such a good life before the pagans. This is chapter 2. That they may see your good deeds and be ashamed when they accuse you and glorify God on your behalf. Live that kind of life before them so that they may see your good deeds. And then he says, be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear because somebody's going to ask so this is what I want you to do okay I want you to listen for the question put your spiritual ears on pray that you will see people and hear people like God sees and hears them even people in your family the children that you're praying for the spouse that you're praying for the people around you Lord help me hear them and see them like you hear them and see them and listen for the question, because it's coming. If you are living with personal holiness and you are abstaining from sinful desires and demonstrating this confidence of character that Peter talks about, if you are faithful in that and if you are taking the initiative to love those about you, to turn the other cheek, the question is coming. Who are you and why do you behave this way? I don't know how that question will be asked, but it will be asked. And what you must do is prepare for that moment. Because your life without your words is not enough. Jesus said in the, great, in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, now, God's word is his light. Jesus was both the Word of God and the light of God. And the light shined in the darkness, this Word that God sent. And your Word lights up your deeds. So you got to prepare for the moment when the question comes. With the people closest to you that you love the most, who know you the best. And when the question comes, how do you do it? That's when you point them to the Savior who rescued you as a sinner in the mud pit where you were stuck. And don't you dare take the credit for the life that you live 
and the person that you are. Don't you dare steal the glory from the God who gave his son for you so you could be new in Christ. So you could be a new creation. So you could be evidence of his grace through all the ages to come. Don't you dare hold that glory. When the question comes, you reflect it to the Father who loves you and gave his son for you, who died on the cross for you. That's where you give the glory. Prepare for the moment. Practice it. How are you going to tell your story about who you are in the world? You might... You might want to just practice it with somebody in your family or somebody in the class. When they ask you for the hope that is in you. And you make sure you do like Philip did. Philip started at that very point and preached unto the Ethiopian, Jesus. He's the only hope. Is there somewhere else to go in this world? When somebody has the question and they want to know about who you are in the world and why you're doing this and that, is there any place else to go except Jesus who is the light of the world and the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life? There's just nowhere else to go. To whom shall we go? The disciple said, you alone have the words of life. He's the only place to go. And know this, dear sister, when you are hurting, when you are suffering, that's when your testimony is brightest in the world. It's easy to sing when everything's going your way. But when you're in the dungeon and they put you in the blocks and they beat you near death and as dark as it can be, the song that you raise to the Father is the greatest praise of all. And it's in your pain where your word is most powerful. Let's bow together. Father in heaven, we want to be true. We want to stand tall and firm. We want to follow the steps of the Lord Jesus. We want our life to fit our words. We want to be clean. Lord, I pray that you will do your work in us cleansing and forgiving. Father, I pray that today you would help us get started fresh and new, living as you called us to live in a place so needy as this and show us the steps we can take that follow you in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.